Hello and welcome to Devil's Chess Club. I'm Aaron Good, and today Bryce Green and I are going to be talking to two outstanding journalists, Minar Adley and Alan McLeod from Mint Press News. We'll be talking about Israel's assault on Gaza in general, and in the show notes we've included two links to some of their recent work. From Minar, we have the Hannibal Directive, what really happened on October 7th. I suggest that you check that out. And for uh, Alan, we have Behind Israel's Propaganda Campaign, uh, where he explains just the sheer amount of uh, staggering propaganda that we are being bombarded with constantly. Devil's Chess Club is an American Exception production. Please support American Exception on Patreon if you can. Now let's talk to our guests. We are excited to have two excellent journalists from Mint Press News, Alan McLeod and Minar Adley. Uh, thank you both for joining us today. Hello, thank you. Great to be with you, Aaron and Bryce. Yeah, it's uh, great to have you both on. Uh, Mint Press has been one of my staple alternative media sites and outlets for quite a while. Uh, once I discovered them, I was in, uh, you know, uh, still in school, but learning about how, you know, the mainstream sources aren't always as accurate as uh, they purport themselves to be. And piercing through the propaganda about all the different wars at all the, the different interventions and policies that the United States has, uh, you guys have been doing an excellent job with that. Uh, so can you talk about a little bit uh, how you founded uh, Mint Press News, how you got started uh, and your journey from, you know, uh, just starting out to being a powerhouse now? Well, first of all, thank you guys both for having me on today. Um, Mint Press News was founded in 2012. Uh, we're an independent watchdog media outlet that um, looks at the profiteers of the permanent war state. But you could say that Mint Press was really born when I was 13 years old after having lived under Israeli occupation and apartheid for nearly four years, where I witnessed grave human rights abuses um, by the state of Israel. I lived under a two-tier system where Muslims and Christians, uh, Palestinians alike, were treated as second-class citizens at best, and uh, white Jewish Israelis were treated as uh, the with 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 uh, more rights. They were given more rights and treated with more rights than Palestinians. And so, as an American, having lived in Palestine, living in, in Jerusalem under this two-tiered apartheid system and witnessing um, a military occupation and having seen and lived through Israeli bombs being dropped on Palestinian homes in Ramallah, um, having to cross through checkpoints, going to school as a preteen, sometimes with half of the students in my class uh, not present because of the checkpoints and control over Palestinian movement, having our water cut off, living under militarized uh, curfews uh, when visiting family in the city of Hebron. This was very traumatizing for me as a preteen. And so when I had moved back to the United States when I was 13 years old, suffering from PTSD and anxiety and having that survivor's guilt and my mind racing constantly uh, about the war that I had just left, left behind, um, I turned to the media at the age of 13 to keep up to date with what was happening in Palestine, only to find a mainstream corporate media that was uh, portraying the crisis in Palestine completely opposite of what it was. 
and they presented it through a lens of through the lens of religion, Muslim versus Jew. This has been going, this fighting has been going on for thousands of years. Um, and never through the lens of modern day colonialism, never through the lens of apartheid, never through the lens of military occupation and warfare. And certainly not the fact that Israel acted as a proxy military state for the United States in the Middle East. And so that became my first, um, the first time I had really witnessed how the media flipped the narrative about uh, war and demonized Palestinians as barbaric and backwards and uncivilized. And a couple of months after I moved back from the US, I know this is a long-winded answer, but this, I hope this answers your question. After A couple of months after I moved back from the US, 9-11 happened. And again, I'm 13 years old sitting in the, my classroom as the only Muslim, the only Palestinian, uh, watching the media dehumanize uh, billions of Muslims around the world to justify now the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. And one of the things that happened when I was in my junior high is that um, I saw how the media, CNN and MSNBC, played a video out of Gaza where Palestinians were celebrating Eid, our Muslim holiday, handing out candy, and planted that video after 9-11 and said, look at Palestinians celebrating 9-11. They were in fact not celebrating 9-11. And so this really kind of triggered this interest in me at 13 years old um, and kind of put the, allowed me to kind of point my finger at the media and, and allowed me to say, and to come to the conclusion that it was the media that was uh, allowing these wars to continue, whether it was the war in Palestine and Israel or the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan where 2 million people died in each of those countries, those devastating wars that were all based on lies, lies of weapons of mass destruction. And so from that moment at 13 years old, I decided to pursue journalism. And every essay, every speech, everything I did moving forward was about becoming the media, changing the media, and um, with this vision and dream of mine to create a media outlet that would change the face of news and journalism in the United States because there was a lack of alternative voices and media because of the fact that six corporations control 90% of what Americans see, hear, and read. And so I saw that as an opportunity. And so after college, I started Mint Press and slowly but surely, you know, with the support and building the staff, we became the international news outlet that we are today. Yeah, I you guys are a very reliable source on things, especially related to the Middle East, but on U.S. foreign policy in general. And that's uh, amazing to me that you came back to the U.S. Uh, and then a couple months later, 9-11 happens because that was my experience. I actually had been in, I lived in Taiwan for one year and then I came back. My contract like expired, you know, at the end of August. And so I came back in like early September and then a week later, 9-11 happened. And uh, I, I, I didn't actually watch it on TV. It was the, the weirdest thing. I, I was kind of, I thought Bush was a, some a gangster who'd kind of stolen the election and i thought it was really bad and i thought people are going to go nuts and it's not like i i'm squeamish or something it's not like I'm, I'm afraid of violence and i'm a political i was a political science major i'm kind of a political junkie but for whatever reason i was like i just i don't need to see this coverage and uh it, it, it I, that impacted the way i never was behind the i, I thought like yeah they'll go into afghanistan because it's, there's it just seems like that's unavoidable but this iraq thing seems so gangsterish and yet they did it anyway but I didn't have that 
conditioning of watching 9-11, which is, which seems like that's what 9-11 was for, to condition, I mean, that, even the one generic, one version of explaining 9-11 is that it was a provocation from bin Laden to get us to launch wars to damage U.S. national security, which is a, a funny and odd thing to think of when you think about it. But what you guys do, uh, so, so I'm, I'm sympathetic. I, I really am sympathetic to what it must have been like for you, because if it seemed like bullshit to me, I can only imagine as a Palestinian what it would have been like at, at that time period uh, and to be there with so much propaganda. And that, Alan, is something that you focus on uh, in, in your work. I think that's your graduate work, too, deals with this, this work, as, as I recall. So uh, as a journalist and as an academic, you know a lot about propaganda. Uh, what can you say about, uh, you, you've written about this in many articles, including one a couple of days ago, we'll put in the uh, show notes here. What can you say about this propaganda blitz that we've been, that's been ramped up, you know, as high as it could be uh, recently, and that's actually not working that well, but what is the state of Israeli propaganda these days uh, and propaganda about U.S. foreign policy in general? Yeah, you know, almost as important and in some ways more important than what's actually going on with tanks and rockets and troops in Gaza, for Israel anyway, is how the world perceives uh, what's going on. So in other words, the propaganda war is more important than the actual military war. Israel has complete control over Gaza and has for decades now. It controls who goes in and out, what goes in and out. It controls the seas, the air pretty much everything about this narrow, densely populated strip, right? However, what it can't control is how the rest of the world perceives uh, its um, brutal occupation, its um, apartheid-like system inside its own country. Uh, and it's very important for Israel to try to uh, convince enough people, particularly in the uh, countries that are really the movers and shakers, the United States, Western Europe, to support their campaign because ultimately they know that uh, their project can only be sustained from outside. And so we're seeing a massive uh, campaign from the Israeli government and the Israeli military to try to convince Westerners in particular to convince them. One thing they have done, for example, is spend more than 7 million US dollars in two weeks on YouTube ads, which targeted um, people all over the world, but primarily in the United States and Germany France, Belgium, and the United Kingdom. And that $7 million paid for around 1 billion sets of eyeballs to see Israeli propaganda videos presenting Israel as a democratic state under attack from ISIS-like terrorists. Um, they have also been spending big uh, on advertising campaigns on X, formerly Twitter, on Instagram, on uh, online games, and more. But actually what we're seeing is social media particularly social media geared towards young people, ones like TikTok, have come out to be very pro-Palestinian. You see the amount of um, hashtags that are using pro-Palestinian um, sayings. Uh, they're really going exponentially further than the uh, pro-Israel stuff because the pro-Israel stuff is, to a large extent, artificial and astroturfed. When we talk about the uh, propaganda war and public opinion in the West, it's very interesting to see that it's actually split very clearly along age lines. So you see that uh, people in the United States who are retired, 60 or over, are strongly supportive of the Israeli campaign. But people under 35, the millennials, the Zoomers, uh, have the absolute opposite um, 
interpretation of what's going on. And that's not just an age thing. That really reflects um, the fact that older people in the West still get their news from giant corporations in the form of uh, cable news or from newspapers, right? Whereas younger people tend to get it from social media, which has a lot of problems, but is significantly more democratic in the sense that different ideas will percolate out there, even though the government of Israel does put a lot of pressure on groups, uh, platforms like Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, etc., to take down a lot of pro-Palestinian content. And they have been doing that for years and years. In fact, when we look at who's on Facebook's um, board of directors, we see there's a former head of the Israeli justice ministry there, Amy Palmore, who in her role as um, justice secretary used to uh, oversee basically the process of uh, deportations of uh, removing Palestinians from their houses, etc. But she also actually put a lot of pressure on Facebook in that role to take down pro-Palestinian content. And the Israeli government once um, boasted that more than 90% of its um, requests to Facebook were actually granted. So yeah, Israel is trying very hard to try and control the narrative. But ultimately, when you see how much organic support it has in the world, it's very minimal. How many countries are really going out on a limb to support uh, the Israeli government? There's maybe a handful, the governments of India, the United States, some in Western Europe. But when you look at the rest of the world, Asia, Latin America, Africa, they're really standing behind the Palestinians. And what's even more interesting is that the people in uh, the global north are highly split. And when you actually look at a lot of the data, even uh, countries with governments that are strongly supportive of Israel are seeing gigantic protests, organic ones, hundreds of thousands of people in the street in places like London, in Paris, in Berlin, in uh, DC, uh, in New York, whatever. So even though the Israelis are trying to win this propaganda war and they're trying very hard, it's not going very well for them right now. Yeah, I, I deeply identify with this idea that the propaganda war is uh, as important and in some ways more important than the actual war, uh, because Israel is only able to operate the way it does with the backing of the Western powers, largely the United States. And that happens uh, through, uh, you know, this is the old term, manufacturing consent in the American population by only portraying one side of the conflict as, uh, as a legitimate point of view and excluding the others. Uh, and I, I deeply identify with your story, uh, Minar, uh, although in a, a different uh, magnitude. Uh, I wasn't, you know, there. I didn't directly suffer under the uh, Israeli occupation. But learning about that and watching the media coverage of the uh, of Palestine uh, was a real education about how the media system actually operates in America and serves the interests of the you know, the corporate establishment and the military establishment. In fact, the first thing I ever wrote was about uh was about palestine was about the uh the 2018 or, or 2019 bombing attacks and how they were miscovered by the media and how uh, the reality was you know far more gruesome than they were letting on um and since then it's always been a a a key educational tool for teaching other people about the nature of the american media and this ongoing attack on gaza uh, we've seen the propaganda ramped up to uh, almost unseen levels before. I mean, you mentioned the YouTube ads, but also just the official Israeli accounts. Uh, they're just going crazy, tweeting out nonsense, tweeting out ridiculous things, 
tweeting out Lord Voldemort memes that link to uh, atrocities, uh, atrocity videos. It's been very bizarre. So uh, I'm curious of the uh, for both of you, what have been some of the most extreme examples of Israeli propaganda, misinformation, mm-hmm. disinformation throughout this conflict? Well, when we talk about uh, Israeli propaganda specifically, I mean, uh, let's take the bombing of the Al-Ali Baptist uh, um, hospital that happened uh, recently, where hundreds of people are believed to have been killed in a huge uh, airstrike. Uh, Israeli uh, semi-official spokespersons basically took credit for it in the early uh, minutes and hours after the attack, and that was quickly pulled back when it was uh, realized just how many people had died and what the reaction was. And suddenly Israel changed its tune entirely, sending out ridiculous uh, videos that were easily disproven almost immediately because they were uh, from 2022. Or for instance, uh, putting out uh, audio of what was purported to be uh, Hamas fighters talking to each other, saying actually it was uh, our side that made the mistake, it wasn't the Israelis, etc. But again, immediately when you speak to linguists who actually study this stuff, they said this couldn't possibly be Hamas officials because the accent is wrong, the people aren't speaking in fluent Arabic, etc., etc., etc. And in fact, uh, one company even found that um, the audio was such that uh, it had been spliced together in a way that was completely unnatural and wasn't from a call at all. So the Israeli uh, government keeps putting out all sorts of extremely easy to debunk propaganda. I mean, just recently, um, one of the um, spokespersons for the prime minister's office uh, put out a video talking about how Palestinians were staging uh, were staging um, uh, incidents using crisis actors, and the the video they put out was actually from a Lebanese uh, video that came out a couple of years ago. And again, this stuff is so easily disprovable, but it almost doesn't matter because the Israeli government has a lot of allies in Western corporate media. And we have to remember what corporate media is. I mean, it is ult- they are ultimately gigantic multinational corporations who very much have interests in preserving the the uh, global order because their owners and their um, sponsors in the form of advertisers benefit from this. And so we have seen news media throughout the world parrot very um, uh, dubious Israeli propaganda. This whole, whole whole thing started on October 7th. And one of the first things we heard about this Hamas attack was that Hamas uh, committed mass rapes and also beheaded 40 babies. This thing was picked up and was front page news, led bulletins across the world. And even Joe Biden himself uh, said that he had seen evidence of this. And yet there was no evidence. The White House had to ramp it back. Uh, There was never really any hard evidence of this. In fact, I think I'm right in saying that the the, uh, list of uh, casualties on the Israeli side doesn't actually include any children under three, certainly not 40. And so this sort of atrocity propaganda, which we've seen time, time, time again, start wars. I'm thinking of, for example, 2011, when the media said that uh, Gaddafi was giving his soldiers uh, Viagra to rape Libyan rebel women or how... We saw that again with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine 
and they posted oh, up that yes. exact same that exact same line that Putin was giving his soldiers Viagra. That's uh, right. Of course, yeah. in both cases, they were walked back. Sure, uh, we can go even further back. The the Gulf War One was started with lies about Iraqi soldiers taking Kuwaiti babies out of incubators and killing them or putting them on bayonets, and this sort of stuff actually goes back to the very dawn of propaganda or public relations, as it, as it's called with the Committee on Public Information in World War I in the United States, where Americans were bombarded with atrocity propaganda about uh, the German forces. And that turned a very passive, pacific American population into ranting, jingoistic warmongers who pretty much supported uh, President Truman's, and uh, not President Truman, President Wilson's uh, decision to uh, take the United States to war. And so, yeah, this sort of stuff this atrocity propaganda works, and we're seeing it time and time again. But every time you look into it, uh, sometimes these claims actually fall apart. Minar, what's been your, uh, how has this been for you the last month? Like, I mean, you have to run Mint Press, but also you have a personal connection to this. I mean, I'm, I'm steeped in the U.S., atrocities and like i mean the structural violence kills like nine million people a year that the u.s presides over i'm i'm a, i'm can i can be a little numb to these things because i don't have any personal connection to palestine or any of these crisis zones really what how have you been able to um handle this day-to-day -day, uh while you're trying to pr perform professionally but steeped in something that has to be really personally uh taxing and psychically kind of just uh, torturous for you. Well, I think you described that pretty well. It has been uh, psychologically and emotionally very difficult to process just the amount of death and destruction and um, that has been taking place in Gaza to watch over 10,000 people be killed in the blink of an eye um, and just to watch all of these children being killed, these you know images of babies, limbs being all over the place, uh, parents carrying the limbs of their children, their dead children in grocery bags. It's been quite psychologically devastating. And on the other hand, while running press, we're running, we're working around the clock um, to counter the propaganda. And one of the biggest things that we've been trying to counter is the Israeli propaganda machine and also the U.S. Uh, media, corporate media um, propaganda machine that pushes soft propaganda in the way that it frames what's happening in Palestine um, and in Gaza in a way that truly does manufacture consent for Israel's um, war crimes and crimes against humanity that it's committing in, in Gaza. And one of the things that we've really been trying to do is counter this atrocity propaganda um, that, that Alan um, has been talking about. The whole basis of the war is based on one gigantic lie. Um, what happened on October 7th, what we've come to know to be fact on October 7th is in fact not fact at all, factual. Um, we have been lied to about the events of October 7th, and certainly we, we, might not we might not ever really truly know exactly what happened, but a lot of things that we've come to know have turned out to be false and fake information that has been pushed by the Israeli military and by the Netanyahu government and its, its media, the Israeli media. But luckily, 
um, the way we've been able to find out what's true and what's not is also from within the Israeli government, the Israeli military, and the Israeli uh, media. What is not being discussed about October 7th is how the Hannibal Directive was being used on October 7th. Um, the situation escalated on October 7th, not when the Hamas fighters paraglided out of um, the Gaza prison and onto the military bases. It was, in fact, now we know more, and this is, again, information we're receiving from the Israeli uh, police reports and military reports, is that when the Hamas fighters came into the military bases, it was the Israeli police and military that initiated the heavy gunfire. And we have many videos that we have analyzed to showcase this. Um, we also have video of Israeli tanks firing at the music festival um, and where Hamas fighters fired back. But it was the Israeli soldiers and the Israeli uh, police who initiated all of the gunfire. And at one point, uh, we know that um, when Hamas overran an Israeli military base on October 7th at the Erez crossing, Brigadier General Avi Rosenfeld, the commander of the base, actually called in an airstrike on his own position, even as he and countless others were stationed there and still fighting Hamas. And this was reported by uh, Haaretz newspaper in an investigation that they conducted. And more and more uh, of the numbers that are coming out of those killed, as mentioned, or Alan mentioned, um, there were no, there was nobody killed under the age of three. But now we are learning that over 80% of those killed were in fact uh, Israeli soldiers. And so the entire basis of Hamas coming in and just shooting at people at this music festival, um, that Hamas was kidnapping uh, Israelis like Shani Luke and, and killing them and raping them, all of this information has turned out to be false. Now, did Hamas take hostages, prisoners of war. That is absolutely true. Did Israelis die because of this gunfire being caught between the gunfire? That is also true. But the whole basis of this shock and awe that Hamas came in and mass raped women and that they just opened fire on a music festival, all of those things turned out to be false, including the story of the beheaded, the 40 beheaded uh, baby story those things have all been backtracked. And so it's been overwhelming, I guess you could say, to witness these atrocities being um, that are taking place inside of Gaza while also simultaneously fighting this gaslighting that we're experiencing within the media. Even though a lot of these this information that I'm sharing with you about October 7th are factual, the media is still running with the fact that Hamas beheaded 40 stories. Politico just last week led with one of their articles. The first line was about how um, these 40 beheaded babies were buried, a complete lie. And that was the first line of a Politico article. The New York Times still running with this story. Um, another thing that these media outlets are running with is this idea that Hamas has these like unlimited tunnels of uh, where they're all under hospitals and they're all under um, homes and schools and basically putting all the blame on Hamas 
for what Israel is committing, which is you know, Israel's committing war crimes. And so again and again, we're seeing a media that is dehumanizing Palestinians, framing what happened on October 7th as a, you know, a barbaric act um, with rape and beheadings and then blaming Palestinians for their own deaths. And this is not a new tactic within media propaganda. We saw this kind of dehumanization of the victims of our war when the U.S. launched its uh, wars on Afghanistan and Iraq. Living in a post 9-11 America, I saw and lived through the way the media dehumanized Muslims constantly to frame the men as barbaric, as aggressive, and that is just certainly not the case. That is just not the case. I just went to Palestine. I was just there this summer, luckily before this war broke out, but I was just there in the month of July and August for two months. And I saw the two-tiered uh, apartheid system once again. I hadn't been there for 18 years, but I saw the occupation expand. And it's really interesting how the media can um, push all of this dehumanization of the people that are living under these bombs, because that's the only way that they can justify Israel's crimes. I mean, look at the New York Times, for example. The New York Times Bureau in Jerusalem is built on a Palestinian home, the home of a Nakba survivor, a woman named Rada Karmi. She's an activist. The New York Times ethnically cleansed a Palestinian family's home so they can build the New York Times Bureau in Jerusalem. The New York Times takes gag orders from the state of Israel on what they can and cannot publish about the crisis in Palestine and Israel. They've been taking gag orders or um, responding to gag orders from Israel for many years. The New York Times bureau, uh, bureau chiefs based in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv have their offspring serving in the Israeli military. And so there's a clear conflict of interest um, within corporate media. And that is just the New York Times. That doesn't even go on to mention the other media outlets and how they really cannot purport to be neutral on the crisis because in reality, they work directly a lot of times with the Israeli government or with the Israeli lobby. Honest Reporting is an Israel lobby group that has lobbied the New York Times, again, to fire uh, their Palestinian uh, employees, their Palestinian photojournalists and journalists. And so we have a huge conflict of interest when it comes to corporate media and their relationship with the Israeli government and the Israeli lobby, which is why it's so important to turn to independent media. But that's also why big tech under the demands of the Israeli lobby and the US government are working so hard to crack down on alternative information and independent media because that's where we're gonna find factual reporting on uh, war because the media that we have today, they don't act as a watchdog to those in power. In fact, they act as a lapdog to those in power. They're working at the behest of those in power. Whereas independent watchdog journalism is truly holding the war class accountable and that's why they fear us so much. Yeah, Menard, you have to leave a little bit early, so I'm going to throw another question at you before we okay. we go back to, to Alan here. Uh, so uh, apologies, Alan, but uh, since Menard has limited time, I want to ask this. So I, I am uh, this uh, what you've been saying there recently, I think, is kind of, is uh, inspiring because I feel like to me, it seems like if you're thinking about how you're going to process this, what better way to do it than something that's constructive? And so I think that like the way that you are trying to 
at least adhere to the belief that the truth might somehow set us free. Uh, I think that's really respectable. <laughs> I look, I look back on these issues in the Middle East and and the conditions in the Middle East, and it seems to be the kind of ultimate example of what the West and the and the Atlanticists have really been about. Because if you trace, you know, World War One has origins connected to the Middle East as well. People don't realize that a lot of this was fears over Germany having access to oil, you know, around that had been discovered in Mesopotamia and so on, and the Brits, you know, fearing this, take actions that end up escalating into World War One, um, and, and so this is like a hugely contested area. And if you look at the Middle East, the the Muslim Brotherhood was a was a British enterprise. Like they backed these kind of people as a counterweight to like secular reformers in the Middle East. And then they also inject Zionism as a kind of way to have a different colonial, it's a different kind of colonial strategy. And so the, 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 the Brits, especially, but then the U.S. picks up this project, they take over management of all, you know, white guy chicanery or imperial crimes around the world. They become the big mafia leader after World War II. But like in this, you can see that the Atlanticists, the Brits, they uh in, they have this the, on the one side they're backing the muslim the, the worst muslim islamist elements you know and have in saudi arabia everywhere else the muslim brotherhood and then the, uh, they back the the fanatical zionists as well and then later as things evolve you have the people the, the right-wing israelis backing groups like hamas on purpose to make to have the most aggressive and least sympathetic face for palestine i mean what how, how do you we now have Putin coming out and saying that the way the U.S. is really the heart of this, this divided, this, they profit from all this instability, all this divide and rule chicanery all around the world. That's all they have for the whole world. Do you think we're at a moment now where the mask is like falling off and more people are able to see like, this is really what the, the Western empire is all about. And it's centuries now and the whole world kind of recognizes it. And even in the U.S., you've got majorities favoring a ceasefire here. So yeah, I mean, are we at an inflection point where if, if we can keep a big war from breaking out, th the tide is going to turn here? Well, the tide is turning and it's been turning slowly but surely. But I think what is taking place now is that the, a genocide is being televised on TV and on our social media feeds. And so Israel and the United States have certainly shot themselves in the foot because now is a crucial time in history where we're seeing mass population across this country, across Canada, across Europe, across Asia, South America, across the entire world. We have never seen so many people united for the cause of liberating Palestine. I mean, this is a moment in history that we can, that we can really, really cherish. If anything positive has come out of this genocide is that it has united people across religious lines, ethnic lines, um, political lines to uh, support the liberation of Palestine and has exposed the moral depravity of the so-called rules-based order that have ruled over us for so long, who have weaponized human rights, who have weaponized democracy to expand their occupations, to expand their financial interests, to expand their warfare, their exploitation, and their um, occupation of the world. And so that's the one positive thing that has happened. And of course, I'm not a historian, um, but the United States 
uh, is actively engaging in this genocide. The United States has blood on its hands. The United States is not only uh, enabling and abetting this, but they're directly profiting off of this, this war. And so we have to remember that not only is Netanyahu the butcher a war criminal, but Joe Biden is a war criminal. And he's not the first war criminal that has led this country. Obama is a war criminal. George Bush is a war criminal. Clinton is a war criminal. <laughs> and the many presidents before them have been war criminals. And so it's not surprising that uh, Joe Biden is supporting this war. Um, and of course, we can't just put the blame on the president, right? You know, these people have handlers that work in the White House, that work in Washington, D.C. Um, the many think tanks like the Atlantic Council, the Heritage Foundation, um, the weapons manufacturers, uh, the lobbyist lobby groups like the Israel lobby and, and others who are working around the clock to ensure that our politicians are given a lot of money and they're given directives to speak on behalf of the Israeli war machine. And we can't just talk about the Israeli war machine as a singular thing because it's, it doesn't work and act on its own. The Israeli war machine and the Israeli state act as a military proxy that fuels the military industrial complex for the United States. So we are living in a historic moment where people are united more than ever. And we have to do more than just go out. I just tweeted about this yesterday. We can't just protest and march on the streets anymore. It's time for civil disobedience. It's time for boycotts. It's time for sit-ins. It's time to shut the whole system down. That's why they fear us. That's why they're cracking down on our rights. That's why they're trying to ban protests. That's why they're trying to label us as anti-Semites every time we speak up about Palestine. You're called an anti-Semite for saying from, river to, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And yet you have Israelis openly talking about wiping out Palestinians, two, over 2.3 million Palestinians out of Gaza to build Starbucks and McDonald's and, and amusement parks. <laughs> what do you call that? Well, that's genocide. That's genocidal white supremacist rhetoric. But that serves the United States corporate interests. Why not open up a Starbucks on the beach coast of Gaza? Why not open up a McDonald's? That's good for business. And so we have to now, because we are yielding so much power, us, we, the people, are yielding so much power right now, we have to take this to the next level of putting pressure on the political system to remind them that, hey, we elected you guys. You don't work for the weapons manufacturers. You don't work for the lobby groups, you don't work for Israel, you work for us, we the people of the United States. And the same thing for people in Britain, the same thing for the people of Canada. We can't just organize these marches with the cooperation of the police and the local you know, county <laughs> anymore. We have to actually put pressure through the sit-ins, the boycotts, and shutting these weapon manufacturers down. That's the only way that we are gonna win in stopping a genocide from happening. That's all we're trying to do is say enough killing, enough murder, enough savagery. The real savages are those in power with the guns, with the money, with the tanks, dropping bombs on innocent people. Those are the real, real terrorists. Those are the real savages. Those are the real uncivilized people that rule us. Do you think, this might be the last question before you go, uh, Menard, do you think that the U.S. 
is, has designs on a wider war here because or elements I, I am personally convinced that some people like of the Victoria Newland mode are thinking like this could be a way to start a war with Iran or 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 to really go into have an excuse to go into Syria. I mean, do you think that there's a, a that if other countries intervene, that this would be a wider war that that and that in some ways elements in the U.S. are perhaps hoping for such a thing? I mean, this is what makes this situation so uh, exp potentially explosive: is that if Hezbollah enters in force, or if if Iran somehow responds to what's happening in Gaza or any other country, that it would you know, that it would give the, the them an excuse to launch wars against these people. But I have to think other people in the U.S. realize, like, this would put the U.S. in a really bad position. But what what do you see here as far as the a, the, a bigger game being played, even going beyond what's going, the, the sort of hellish situation in Gaza right now? Um, I do believe that there are many U.S. politicians here uh, that would love nothing more than for a war with Iran. And these are people like Marco Rubio and others who have supported the U.S. maximum pressure campaign against Iran through economic sanctions. These are the same people that have supported sanctions against Venezuela and uh, Cuba and what is it, 25% of the world's population of governments that don't support U.S. imperialism. So there's no doubt that those people do exist. But the military planners know that the United States cannot win a war with Iran. And so while we do have those hawkish voices, we do know from inside the U.S. government and the military planners that they know that a war with Iran cannot be won. Iran is almost, what, two and a half times the size of Iraq. And that population in Iran, I would say over 90% of the population is ready to take up arms and serve their country in a war against any invader. Okay, so it's a war that cannot be won. I think Iran's population, I don't remember the number, but it's a, a very large number for population-wise. Somebody can look it up. But the U.S. and no country would win a war with Iran. So the people who want war with Iran is Israel, and it's the Israel lobby. They're willing to pull the United States and American soldiers and the American citizens into a war that would not end well for anybody. And it wouldn't even end well for Israel. And Israel right now today has several nuclear weapons, if not hundreds, pointing directly at Iran. Iran doesn't have nuclear weapons. And they're not, and if they don't even have any weapons pointing at anybody. <laughs> and we know this, we know that they don't have nuclear weapons. Um, and so Israel, is the one who's pulling, trying to pull the United States into a war with Iran. And they have expanded their warfare against the people of Gaza, the Palestinians in Gaza, with an intent to try to draw Hezbollah into a war with Israel. But Hezbollah is also not playing that game. Hezbollah was formed to protect southern Lebanon an armed resistance group that was there to protect and defend and liberate southern Lebanon from Israel's invasion before. And so I don't think the United States wants a broader war with Iran because they know it's a war that they cannot win. And it's a war that the world would not support either. We are living in a new world right now. 
a multipolar world. We're moving in that direction, where the United States, the United, excuse me, the, the United States is rendering um, irrelevant very soon. We have the rise of Russia, the rise of China, and the rise of Iran. China is investing billions of dollars into Iran, a country that has been sanctioned for over 60 years. And because of how largely educated Iran's population is and um, how large their population is, their economy is about to just explode on the international market. And so apart from all of the warfare that we're talking about, we have to remember that Iran simply poses an economic threat to Israel. And Iran has for over 60 years, um, you know, of course, like any other country, it's going to have its internal problems. But overall, Iran has always been an anti-imperialist state, just like Venezuela, just like Cuba. And they don't want the U.S. or Great Britain or any of the European countries to influence and to occupy their economy and their natural resources. And that's their right. <laughs> and so that's where Iran really poses a threat. And so I do believe Israel is the one who's trying to pull Iran into this war. But Iran, I don't think Iran is going to be is going to respond and get into the war. And neither will Hezbollah. And they made that very, very clear. They're going to defend themselves. And Israel, of course, doesn't care. They do what they do best, is that they are raining bombs and they're airstriking southern Lebanon. And the U.S. already occupies a third of Syria, where it is occupying the most oil and natural resource-rich region in Syria. And by the way, the reason Israel is raining bombs on Gaza and not really expanding its land operation, even though they are, they've entered, but they're not doing it at a very large scale, is because they can't win a land, a ground invasion, excuse me, a ground invasion. They can't. Because Palestinians there are defending their land. And there's also a lot of misinformation, by the way, about Hamas. Okay, Hamas is not like a small group of people. It's over 40,000 people. It's an elected government. And they have dedicated their political actions and motivations to defend the Gaza Strip against Israeli bombs and invasion. So a lot of people like to point their hands at Hamas and say, well, if Hamas didn't exist, <laughs> well, if Hamas wasn't responding with rockets, well, what do you want Palestinians to do? You want them to just not respond and do anything? Um, then march? Well, Palestinians have been marching to the security fence to the border of Israel for decades. And all they've been asking for is for lifting the siege to allow for basic necessities like water and uh, humanitarian aid to enter. Two years ago, over 70,000 Palestinians marched to the Gaza border every Friday. And you know what Israel did? They sniped the people. They sniped the men, the women, the paramedics. They killed them point blank. And they were told to target pregnant women. They were told to target the limbs, the knees, the ankles of men so that they wouldn't die, but that they could live amputated. They could live in misery. How sadistic. So we have to really ask ourselves, what do we want Palestinians to do? We can point our fingers at Hamas all we want, but they have a right under international law as an occupied people who have been living under occupation and have been ethnically cleansed 
for over uh, 70 years to pick up arms and resist. And look what Israel is doing now. It's out in the open, their plan. Their plan is now to ethnically cleanse the 2.3 million Palestinians out of Gaza for the Greater Israel Plan to uh, forcibly evict them and push them into the Sinai Desert where the United States has already requested billions of dollars in so-called humanitarian aid where we as the American public are footing the bill, the taxpayer, to fund these tent cities that they're going to push all these people out and basically force them to live in a desert in tents as refugees. And we're footing the bill. So Israel can take the miles of gas reserves across, across the Gaza Strip and build a Ben-Gurion canal um, on the Red Sea port so that they can have access to the international uh, trade that's happening in those ports. So in the end, we can talk about you know, what wars are really about. They're really just about extracting resources and economic interests. Minar, thank you very much. I will uh, we'll let, we'll say goodbye to you now and let you go to your next interview that you have. And Alan's going to stick around for a few minutes. So, uh, awesome. Minar, it's, it's great to see you again. I hope to see you in person again, maybe in the Bay Area yes. again with our guy, Mickey Huff. Uh, but thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. And uh, keep up the amazing work. I'll be watching. Let me know when this comes out. I'd love to make a couple of clips out of it, okay? Yeah, absolutely. You should. Very good. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye, guys. This uh, propaganda war, I mean, that you're, that you're talking about or that we've been talking about, you know, includes things like uh, omitting the realities of the bombing campaign, all this propaganda about Hamas and how uh, what Hamas is and whether or not Hamas is a group that can be negotiated with. Uh, but one of the arenas that we talk about this in, I mean, we all use Twitter uh, quite a bit. But Alan, you recently wrote an article about how the community notes feature is being manipulated by uh, the pro-Israel mob gang or whatever. Um, and, you know, in my opinion, the community notes feature was one of the least bad things that the new Musk Twitter has done, uh, mostly because I guess I've seen people I dislike and people who lie get absolutely destroyed by a well-placed community note. Uh, but as you've written, uh, the opposite is sometimes true, and it's actually happened to me one or two times. But can you explain a little bit about, A, how this Community Notes feature actually works and the ways in which it's been manipulated by uh, the pro-Israel partisans? Sure. Well, uh, Community Notes is a new function on Twitter that's really designed to fight false information. And I think it basically has good intentions. How it works is uh, if you want to sign up to become a community note moderator, you can do that. And um, the point of community notes is that um, there is plenty of false information on Twitter there. And uh, if enough people in the community see a post and they decide that uh, something about it is blatantly incorrect, they can add a note to something saying, hey, this video is actually from 2017, not from now. So bear that in mind, something like that. You know, it's, it's a good idea in a lot of senses. It takes away the um, fact-checking uh, prestige and power from big organizations like PolitiFact or uh, the Washington Post or whoever else decides that they're the arbiters of truth and uh, falsehoods online or in the world generally. However, the fact that anybody can just sign up to become a community note moderator 
does lead to some problems, right? Because it's if got, enough it's people, Alan, can I, can I, is, it's got to be the Wikipedia thing again, right? It's like who's going to be able to have resources to get people doing this? Am, am I right here? Absolutely, yeah. I actually, yeah, I made that comparison myself in my own brain. You know, it's it's a good idea and practice because you think well anyone can do it but the reality is is that anybody can't do it because most people have jobs or most people don't even speak english and most people don't have time to do you know patrol social media to write notes uh, down and so ultimately what's going to happen and what we're seeing with this uh campaign here and this uh war that's going on or though i probably shouldn't even call it a war it's a slaughter really uh, is that uh, mobs of pro-Israel trolls are flooding this community notes feature and trying to add sticky notes to pretty much any viral post that shows Palestine in a good light or, um, or Israel in a negative one. And whenever that note is on a, a function or a post or whatever, it's like a red badge of shame. It's a warning label. And it also means that um, posts are demonetized and probably won't be seen by nearly as many people. And so if you work in unison, you can really do a fair amount to try to curb how social media is perceived, the whole public perception, what people see and what people don't see. And as you said, Aaron, it, it is kind of reminiscent of Wikipedia, whereby in theory, anybody can edit that encyclopedia. But in practice, what happens is, is that, again, you need to have certain skill set, you need to speak English, you need to have the free time, etc., to go on Wikipedia and do these things. And furthermore, people who spend more time on there and make more edits uh, have more prestige and rank up to higher levels so that their edits stick, which means that organized groups can actually use Wikipedia to try and push agendas, try and remove things uh, from articles. And there are groups that offer their services to anybody who is willing to pay, whether it's corporations or governments, to clean up their Wikipedia page. I mean, Mint Press's media, Wikimedia page, uh, Wikipedia page is absolutely awful. And it's being uh, constantly targeted and vandalized by trolls which, who many people suspect have close ties to the government. And so in that way, you can try and shoot the messenger to begin with. And I think that's what we're seeing as just one part of the Israeli strategy to try and um, win over as many people to their position as possible. Yeah, it's, it's, I, it's like the free press in America. You, anybody can have a, a, a free press, right? Or it's like the campaign system. Anybody, we're all equally free to give a million dollars to a politician. Well, that's that's great. But how does that work in practice? Yeah, you know, I, I've been using this uh, that that feature where you rate the community notes, and sometimes I'll see I'll see one that's like especially egregious. I'll be like, eh, downvote, eh, not helpful, not true. But do you know if that ha what what mechanisms actually lead them to remove a note? Because I had a note removed from one of my tweets, uh, but I've never looked uh, deeply into the actual mechanisms. Is it a black box or is there an actual like function that you can look at? Mm, it's not clear, actually. I did try and look at this as well. But uh, again, Twitter is changing so often with Elon Musk. It seems like every week some new feature comes out and another one is dropped and the uh, algorithms are tweaked constantly. So we don't really know. But it does certainly seem that uh, if enough people put up enough um, resistance to community notes, they can get taken down. And again, just as uh, if enough people uh, decide to say a community note is helpful and it should be stickied, then it will get stickered onto uh, posts. So really, I think it is some kind of system of uh, upvote, downvote, or positive, negative, thumb up, thumb down, whatever you want to call it. Yeah.
but it's not clear there's no there's no numbers regarding it uh in the sense that we can just look at how many people have said this is helpful and how many are saying this is unhelpful yeah it's, it's, it's interesting to see uh you know the, the the sheer volume of nonsense that goes unchecked on well not just twitter but also the rest of these platforms but one gang of people i haven't seen uh at least in the in the in the press but one gang of people i haven't seen is the the disinformation uh researchers the oh the, the OSINT style, guys yeah yeah or the OSINT guys or the uh you know the you know all the people who are just concerned about uh the the flood of the, the fire hose of falsehood is what they called it when uh, they accused Russia of doing it. But uh, you don't see them out much now, or is that just me and my bubble? I don't see many op-ed pages uh, in the, the mainstream publications talking about it. In fact, I saw one talking about how Russia and Iran and China are utilizing uh, propaganda online to push anti-Israel messages. Is that really the extent of the problem or uh, what's going on? Here? <laughs> no, listen, if you're being if you set yourself up as a fact checker, meaning that you are the, the the arbiter of what is true and what is false, and you're actually getting paid for that, the chances are is that you are very close to some sort of large government or large corporation who or some big think tank that is actually paying your wages because uh, you can't make a living doing that as like some individual uh, fact checker because nobody wants to pay for that because it's not really that useful a service. And so these people are very closely connected with uh, Western state power. And of course, they don't want to scrutinize uh, the United States closest ally in the region, because they want to, they're ultimately there to uphold Western power. So when we talk about fact checkers, and uh, these people who do open source intelligence stuff, uh, they tend to represent a sort of centrist worldview viewpoint, and they tend to go after people from the radical left or the radical right um, and try to attack them, uh, but using the language of facts and uh, open source intelligence to make it seem like their own biases are actually the natural way of things rather than uh, them being absolutely as ideologically committed as the most zealous Marxist or Maoist or fascist or whatever. And that's ultimately what's going on here, especially when it comes to the OSINT guys, which stands for open source intelligence. Half of those guys are in uh, a work for organizations which are directly funded by groups like the National Endowment for Democracy or the Atlantic Council. The NED, of course, being a front group for the CIA and the Atlantic Council being the brains of NATO. And so ultimately, you really can't trust what these sorts of people are saying when those are the sorts of uh, organizations that are paying their wages. Hence why they're so quiet right now, because they, they really don't want to look at Israeli crimes and dissect how Israel is lying in the media. Yeah, and that's, I mean, with between that and um, what's happening in Ukraine, it just is like, it seems so disastrous for the West at this at this particular moment. And no amount of propaganda can really cover cover this up i think if israel proceeds and just commits a genocide in gaza it seems like it will be a pirate victory for them because i mean they are they already have committed genocidal crimes i would argue based on what they've done you know to date uh but they will this they're it looks so bad for the united states and with the internet being what it is i mean it seems that this is really kind of an untenable it's an untenable thing are are we reaching the point where the propaganda is no longer 
effective. I mean, I look at some things that have happened recently, even, you know, we've, uh, I, I spend too much time talking about the, the Kennedy campaign, but setting aside his actual candidacy and positions on things, it's remarkable that a guy would be running and entering, you know, over 20, polling at over 20%. He's like, you know, 13 points behind the other two guys. Uh, when the media has done nothing but slander this guy, does this, is this one more indication that like, the, the public is starting to become reflexively distrustful of whatever the press says. I, I, I think that on some level that may be happening. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the U.S. press still does a reasonably good job in convincing the U.S. public to support whatever position it wants. Of course, trust in media has been absolutely cratering in the past 40 years or more. It goes back to the 1980s when these uh, polls were started to be taken, and you can see that uh, trust in the media has basically been going down year on year. <clears throat> Nevertheless, we do live in a system in the West where we are absolutely dominated by just a handful of gigantic transnational corporations which set the agenda. The big newspapers are owned by oligarchs or <clears throat> big international uh, companies. Same goes for all the big uh, TV stations. Um, however, just because you're able to convince uh, the American public of something doesn't mean that the world is going along with it. And when you look at what's going on with world public opinion and this um, and this particular uh, conflict or with uh, Russia and Ukraine, it's clear that the United States hasn't been able to convince uh, people in the global south, particularly even governments in the global south, to go along with this. I mean, I'm no fan of Russia, but it is pretty surprising that something like 85 to 90% of the world lives in countries which has refused to go along with the US and NATO's plan to sanction Russia. And when it comes to Israel-Palestine, um, the world is looking aghast at what's going on. There are constantly votes in the UN with uh, totals of something like 185 to 3, 189 to 2, all of them condemning Israel for what they're doing. And the two countries that are always against it are the United States and Israel. And now what we're seeing with social media is, is that more and more different uh, and diverse opinions can be, um, can be at least heard. And that's what we're seeing with young people who are just rejecting this outright, young people in the West. And that's precisely why politicians in the United States and Western Europe are now re-exploring the idea of just straight up banning TikTok completely because it's not completely under control from uh, the Western governments because it um, ultimately does have uh, some form of independence being as it is uh, um, an organization that was uh, basically developed from China. You know, they have, but they, they've taken, I mean, they've appointed people that are connected to the U.S. national security to work in TikTok. Oh, yeah. Is the problem with TikTok, is it partly the format is just not good for, for, the, for what the U.S. does because you can do short videos that really debunk U.S. narratives? Or is it, is the problem that even with, with people there policing things, the policing is not as opaque and so they can only do so much with that and so it's like even with even with tiktok trying to cooperate just the fact that they will not be completely secretive and sinister and manipulative about the way that they handle their censorship regime or content moderation or whatever you want to call it i mean what is the deal with tiktok because it seems like tiktok is trying to be a good little corporate corporate friend to the united states in a way but like the U.S. US uh, imperialists keep getting their asses kicked on TikTok. So what's going on there? 
Yeah, I'm not really sure, to be honest. Um, when we talk about uh, TikTok as a platform that doesn't really allow for nuance, right? It's uh, a very, uh, it's a platform, if you don't know, it's a video platform, which allows you to upload very short videos. That is not great for trying to convince people and trying to argue people out of long-held beliefs um, when it comes to uh, geopolitics or something. It's very hard to try and mm, sway someone's opinion in 30 seconds or a minute or whatever in video. And as you said, Aaron, TikTok has been playing ball with the US government. Um, I've written a number of articles about this. One of them is called the NATO to TikTok pipeline. Why is TikTok employing so many national security agents? Which really goes into how uh, a few years ago, you might remember there was this big hullabaloo with the Trump administration talking about banning TikTok. And then they were going to sell it to Bill Gates and Microsoft. And then that deal fell through. And then suddenly nobody was talking about banning TikTok in the end. And what actually happened was TikTok uh, representatives of TikTok went over to the US and uh, signed something called Project Texas, which was a more than $1 billion uh, initiative to take all the data from TikTok users and send it and put it literally in um, offices in Texas so that the US government would have much more control over it. And not only that, at the same time, TikTok started to employ just a plethora of people from the U.S. national security state, whether that's uh, NATO officials or people from the FBI or CIA or NSA. And these people were parachuted in to uh, very senior positions into the company, not in politically neutral fields like marketing or customer service, but in things like trust and safety and content moderation, the stuff that actually matters in the end the stuff that means that you are in control of the algorithm. And yet, despite that, TikTok does seem to have considerably more independence uh, than other social media platforms. However, I would say Israel seems to be getting their ass kicked on many uh, platforms. If you go to Twitter, which is one I use a lot, and you could go to the official, you know, at Israel or at IDF, these, um, these official accounts, they are getting ratio constantly uh, they're to the point where they're being absolutely derided in their comments. People are totally laughing about how uh, obtuse and uh, unbelievable their propaganda is. And so really in social media, I think it's not just the a factor, not just the TikTok factor, but it really is across the board. Um, the Israeli position is not doing well. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it. And I, I don't think that it's going to, I don't know that they're going back from this. I think that, and I don't, what Minar was saying about the younger generation, I think that that is really important. And I don't see the younger people, even younger Jewish people are increasingly mm. some of the most outspoken critics of, of Israel, because honestly, when it comes down to it, probably the worst thing that's happened to Jewish people has been the state of Israel in the, in the bigger sense, because Israel has, is, goes, Israel and its flax are always trying to make it synonymous with Judaism which is actually a pretty, you know, that's a, that's a very dubious thing. And so this is, I'm wondering if they're ever going to really be able to get back to where they were, because to me, the main thing that like they, that they try to obscure as much as possible is just the brutal reality of the situation. And I think more people are just starting to ask the simple question of like, why would people want to break out of Gaza and start killing Israelis or why do they need to break out of any place in the first place? Where do these people live day to day? What is their life like? And when you start to answer that question, the, the, their religion or the ideology of Hamas kind of becomes irrelevant because you can just think like, well, what kind of people wouldn't want to kill their tormentors if they were 
placed under those conditions like pretty much anybody any man who would want to call himself a man would not want to submit to that kind of brutal you know uh brutalization for you and your family and and in going back and into the future it's just to, to me it's it's really something to see this change taking place and it, i think it's also reflective of the material uh, conditions across the west for young people as well i mean global ca uh, western capitalism was booming in the late 20th century for people of that generation there was something of a promise that if you worked hard you might be able to own a house get a good job have a decent life but that sort of thing has really been taken away from so many people in western europe and north america right now so many people um under the age of 30 under the age of 40 are kind of giving up on the the sort of american dream and so ultimately people are more disenchanted with everything to begin with and they are much more questioning of the political and economic system that we live under than their parents' generation was. Yeah, and as a young one... person, uh, as, as a young person hanging around a bunch of college students now, uh, you can definitely see that. I mean, even uh, I came to undergrad in 2016, which for a lot of people was a major moment where people were getting politically uh, educated and understood because they were all scared of uh, the Trump phenomenon and they wanted to understand it better. Uh, and I tell the story about how in 2018, uh, me and friends, we started the IU Palestine Solidarity Committee, uh, where we were, you know, we, we learned about the realities of the occupation and the U.S. support for it. And at, at our first couple of meetings, there were, you know, more Zionists than there were uh, uh, pro-Palestinian students. Uh, but, you know, this year, uh, even you know, a few years later, our call-out meeting had 200 people show up. Uh, and so people and you, there are more leftist groups on campus and there are more and they're more active and they're more serious about, uh, you know, the uh, the work that they do, the uh, the education that they're receiving and uh, the facts and realities of American empire. You can have a, a coherent conversation with like a, an 18 year old just coming onto campus uh, about American empire, colonialism uh, and Israel's role in it. You can have a better conversation with them than you can some professors here. Uh, so I, I see the shift in the young people and, uh, you know, maybe maybe they're blaming that on TikTok, which is why they want to ban it. Uh, but it is heartening to see. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can cut the flowers down, but you can never stop the spring, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. Alan, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I actually have a heart out myself here for a, a, a meeting on uh, the subject of Israel-Palestine, if you can believe it. So. Um, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and uh, to Minar, and uh, I really salute you for uh, all the great work you guys are doing at Mint Press. We'll put links to your work. Any Anything else you want to promote here before uh, we sign off? Uh, no, I just think, yeah, Mint Press, follow me on social media. You can find me anywhere. Yeah, no problem. Okay. Thank you so much, Alan. Thanks, Good Alan. Devil's Chess Club is an American Exception production. Special thanks to Dana Chavaria for producing this episode and to Casey Moore for the graphics. To get first access to episodes of Devil's Chess Club, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon. Subscribers also get over 150 American Exception episodes and counting, uh, all dealing with the deep, dark politics of U.S. empire. After that, you can find episodes on Rockfin Premium, then Rumble, 
and the American Exception channel on YouTube. I'm very pleased that we were able to get Menard Allen to come on Devil's Chess Club. Please check the show notes for links to the articles from Menard and Allen. I have a little photo here that I want to uh, share with you all here with a backstory. Uh, from the left, it's Mark Crispin Miller and then me and then Abby Martin. This was from Project Censored's 40th anniversary conference back in 2016. Funny thing is that it was actually Menar who took the picture. At that conference, Abby and Menar and Mark were on a big keynote panel with David Talbot. And it is kind of funny now, but after the panel, David Talbot was sitting at a table using his phone. And I was going to say hello to him and talk about the Kennedy assassinations because I'd been following his work for a while uh, and really admired it. Uh, but I sort of dallied and then he left before I got a chance to even say hello. Uh, now seven years later and here we are he's uh you know d doing a show he's t off this week but you know he'll be back uh, i need to get mark and abby on the show too sometime soon because uh, they're both great guests the, they'd be great for the show um but sad story now about this uh the next year at the project censored conference when i interviewed peter dell scott and dan ellsberg uh, for their first interview together that was really cool and it uh that one we actually do have I re released those discussions and I put together a panel on the deep state at that conference, the one, the 2017 one. And that panel had Peter Phillips, Abby Martin, me, Mark Crispin Miller, and it was moderated by Mickey Huff. It was a fantastic, very cool discussion. And the recording was totally unusable. So the panel is lost to history, sadly. It's a really bummer. Last thing I want to mention is our man in Russia, their top diplomat, Sergey Lavrov, and he had some things to say, and Financial World, now sticking it to the U.S. Empire, apparently, by doing a write-up on this. But I, I got to read some of this because it echoes things that Putin was saying, and it's really, uh, it's really a something. Uh, the Western world's foreign policy, according to Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov, is not characterized by double standards, but really the main principle, we are in charge and we will pursue our interests. Where we cannot achieve our desired results, we will resort to destabilizing situations and exploit the resulting chaos. Okay, if that's his view of what the U.S. does. How dare, how dare he say those true things about us? Um, Lavrov criticized the U.S., highlighting that uh, its international interventions since the 50s have seldom yielded positive outcomes <laughs> for the regions or countries it sought to influence. Um, there's a strong case to be made for that analysis. Uh, he argued that Washington's primary aim appears to be to sow discord and upheaval with the expectation that these troubled regions will eventually turn to the U.S. for assistance, often in the form of printed dollars. Yep, that's the pattern. Uh, he warned countries seeking help from the U.S. to recall the experiences of past leaders who pinned their hopes on American support. Uh, he, he asserted that as soon as the political landscape shifts, the U.S. will discard these leaders, unburdened by remorse, and proceed with its self-serving agenda. Well, look, just because that has happened time and time and time again doesn't mean it will keep happening forever. Um, mainly because the empires don't last forever. There are many ways to destroy the root of evil. You don't have to pull it out. Um, he emphasized a metaphor here. This is a metaphor uh, stating there are alternative ways to address the root of evil without necessarily uprooting it, suggesting that chemicals symbolizing diplomatic or non-military means can be used. Okay, well, this is where we're at. Uh, the U.S. lost in Iraq, lost in Syria, lost in Afghanistan, and lost in Ukraine. And now we have this genocidal massacre in Gaza, which is absolutely related 
Uh, Bibi wants to save his administration. Many Zionists want the final solution to the Palestinian question, and they feel the need to act quickly before the balance of sh power shifts further away from the West and to the South. On the U.S. side, I have to believe that some of the most deranged deep state functionaries like Victoria Nuland are thinking that the best chance for the U.S. is a wider war. This is insane, obviously, but it's sort of true. A bigger war sparked by the genocide in Gaza would be, say, 97% likely to be disastrous for the U.S., but without a war, it seems the end of U.S. global dominance is a virtual certainty. And as Lavrov says, they don't need or want to hack away at the root of all evil, the U.S. global empire. They need to deal with it economically and diplomatically by and large. So they are not wanting a bigger war. They would rather things play out uh, the way that they have been. And the Gaza situation really radically uh, changes things or it throws some uncertainty in there. And that does not seem entirely accidental. This is a moment in history like no other. The range of possibilities is truly staggering. World peace or nuclear doomsday or something in between. The U.S. empire, including its Israeli outpost, is mired in a messy endgame on the devil's chessboard.